Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'll read you. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. It's WBZ. You are Jay talking. We're live midnight to five. Who's the first person that can guess tonight's guest? He's the, he's, uh, the favorite guest here at uh, Jay talking, I think. Uh, he's much beloved. I've, he, he, I I like him a lot, but you, like, you seem to like him even more. And l- last night I asked, why does everyone love this gentleman so much? We got some answers. Really? Yeah. Wow. So it's Anthony San Marco. You are so beloved, and I, I wanted to get a handle on what it, what it was all about. So maybe I could adopt some of whatever you do. I want to believe it, but I think it's delusionary. But I'm honored to be here. And how are you? I am very well. So a little bit different tonight. We're going to take a look at the Massachusetts Horticultural Society. Well, after two weeks of rain and today this beautiful sun. Tonight when I arrived, it was this wonderful aroma of spring. It's a little gentle rain, warm, and every tree, flower, and shrub is seemingly bursting forth. Yep. Horticulture is that type of thing in you know the month of May in New England that is the most wonderful, remarkable thing. So I think in some ways that tonight I hope I'll help people to understand how important horticultural aspects were in the 19th and 20th century versus agriculture of the 17th and 18th century. All right, that's a good place to start. What's the difference between, well, horticulture, agriculture, and just plants? Well, in two instances, they're very similar. Agriculture in the 17th and 18th century in New England was something that actually was the farming of the land, granting. You were growing crops, you were growing fruit trees, and it was something that sustained not just people, but also the economy. But by the early part of the 19th century, horticulture came into vogue. And horticulture was something that was more than just agriculture. It was something that was somewhat of a scientific approach as to how to grow vegetables or fruit trees. And in that instance, through hybridization, horticulture became one of not only the most important aspects of the 19th century, but it was also something that changed how we ate. Now, in some ways, many of us like pears. Some like seckle pears, some like Bartlett pears, some like Vert d'Anjou, or maybe even Clapp's favorite pears. But they're all distinct varieties, and they actually were created through the hybridization. So taking two distinct varieties of pears and hybridizing them created a new type of a pear. So in the 19th century, you might have pears ripening for two to three months over the entire summer. 
But the whole aspect was that fruit was thought to have medicinal qualities. Do you remember the old adage, an apple a day keeps the doctor away? I do. You know, and I think sometimes we always ate fruit because, of course, we didn't want to go to the doctor. (laughs) But in the 19th century, an apple a day meant that actually they could extend the growing season. And by making it a longer season, you were healthier. So I think hybridization of fruits and vegetables was something that created not just new varieties, but also in some instances revolutionized how we actually created the food that we eat today. It's, I think it's important to rem- remember at the time when hortic- we usually reference horticulture or right. uh, Boston was becoming a thing. No refrigeration at the time, right. and it was important to have types of foods grown that you could can or keep in a root cellar. Exactly. That's a root. We never talk about root cellars, but root cellars were the standard of the day. Well, I think we had a root cellar per se in our home in Dorchester, and of course, these were things that we usually canned, and they were actually used during the winter months. But I've loved to read about the 19th and early 20th century when people would have barrels of sand, and they would immerse turnips and squash and even apples and pears in the wet sand that would actually, hopefully, keep it all winter long. Wow. I didn't Uh, know about the wet sand. Yeah. So by the period of like March or April, I think people were very tired of root vegetables. So when you had the new sprouts, such as not just peas and, of course, things like fiddleheads, but you also had this new aspect of lettuce, and it was something that actually created a very different texture, a different flavor, and something that was a little bit more fresh than root vegetables. So, you know, in the 18th and 19th century, I think many people ate, but they didn't eat the way they began to eat in the mid-19th century. And I think one of the things that I've been trying to do over the years, and I do this on a walking tour of Forest Hill Cemetery, and I'll talk about that later, is to bring food into a walking tour in a cemetery because many of the people that are interred, say, at Forest Hill Cemetery were movers and shakers of the day. So you had people like Thaddeus Clapp, who developed the Clapp favor pair. And you had people such as um, John Richardson, who created the Festiva Maxima Peony, one of the only ones that I actually plant in my own gardens. And you had Marshall Pinckney Wilder, who was a man who hybridized camellias and named them after his three wives and many daughters. But you also had people that were doing things such as creating a longer period, which was somebody by the name of John Richardson with that Festiva Maxima. But you also had Samuel Downer, who created a late ripening cherry called the Downer Late Cherry. So cherries might bloom as early as May, June. You'd have cherries by July, but his was such a late one, it was September. So you had cherries for two months. Wow. So that was something that many people in Boston through their membership in the Massachusetts Horticultural Society, began to realize that it wasn't just a club, but it was a group of people, both men and women, that began to experiment. And through not only their experimentations and that of their gardeners, but it was something that created um, a new approach to how we perceived what was once known as agriculture. Was the Horticultural Society more of a social organization or a scientific organization? I think it was both. 
Every morning when I'm in town, I go by the Massachusetts Horticultural Society building, which is at the corner of Massachusetts Avenue and Huntington Avenue on the opposite corner of Symphony. And I look at this building and I look at the cartouche directly above and, you know, the seal of the society is directly above, founded in 1829. I mean, that was quite early. But, you know, when you look at it and you think of people such as Dearborn, who was one of the founders and a president of the Horticultural Society, it was he who then would actually introduce the first rural or arboretum cemeteries to the United States. He was the one who helped to found not only Mount Auburn Cemetery, but when he was mayor of Roxbury, Massachusetts, when it was a city, he created Forest Hill Cemetery. So these two places of burial, which we would think of as a place simply to bury our family and friends after their deaths, became the Garden of the Dead. And in that instance, horticulture was brought one step further from just not just the hybridization of fruits and vegetables, but now the whole reinterpretation of the hills, dells, and valleys and creating a rural cemetery that was embellished with deciduous trees, conifers, uh, shade trees, as well as the wonderful blooming trees, all working to create a naturalistic aspect, but also drawing on that whole aspect of what horticulture was. Seems there was a focus on making cemeteries very beautiful places, not only visually, but they had f fruit trees, et cetera. Did, did folks have a different vision or opinion or well, use the, for cemeteries well, the than they do now? They did. 17th and 18th century New England, I mean, they were burial places. And in the period of the early 19th century, through Père Lachaise in Paris, people began to reinterpret how a burial ground should actually be laid out. And beginning with Mount Auburn Cemetery and then later Forest Hill Cemetery in 1848, we began to see in some ways that these weren't just places to bury the dead, they were destinations, that people would go there. They were the first public parks. It sounds peculiar, but people would take the streetcar to Forest Hills or even the Boston and Providence Railroad, and there was even a special station at Forest Hills, and they would simply walk up Tower Street. And here was a place that, yes, there were burials, but it was something that you could commune with nature, beautiful pathways, you know, hills, dells, and valleys, Lake Hibiscus, magnificent trees that were being laid out, and, of course, some of the best public art by major sculptors of the 19th century. It was the same aspect at Mount Auburn in Cambridge. And one had to realize that these were places that attracted the people. And Decoration Day, which later evolved into what we call Memorial Day, was something in a lot of ways that brought people not just to decorate the graves of their family and friends, but also possibly to have a picnic. I can remember as a child, our family would actually go to the graves and we actually had a picnic. And it was something that I always thought was something that was secondary. I mean, I always knew about it. But I've been reading so much about this that we would actually plant the specific flowers that had been done for over 100 years, the special flowers that was beloved by whomever that person was. And it was a nice way to actually not only remember the person, but also to see in some ways these old-fashioned things such as Sweet William 
something that we don't often see today in the uh, nurseries as something we'd plant. Is it too late to, this is kind of an aside, too late to get a plot at Mount Auburn Cemetery? No. I think a lot of times people have to realize many of these cemeteries have reinterpreted themselves. Today, we look at a cemetery, and there are so many different ways to actually be buried. There are scattered cremains. There are, you know, memorials. There are things that basically can be a full casket burial as well. But I think people would actually be well served to actually look into things that actually could even be a green burial, such as in a, a wicker coffin and no uh-huh. um, embellishments but you could, whatsoever. It's possible to still get space yes. at Mount yes. Auburn Cemetery. Yes. Who do you talk to about that? Well, I think one would talk to the development department of either Forest Hill Cemetery or even Mount Auburn Cemetery, and you would actually see in some ways that there would be a wide variety of different ways to be buried. Do you have to apply like a, at a fancy preschool or a country club and maybe be rejected? Do you have no. to be somebody? No, the only thing you really need is a check. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't know if they wanted to keep the clientele high end or not. No, I think you have to realize, I mean, death is all-inclusive. It doesn't really discriminate against anyone. I mean, you could actually be, you know, just like I am, just a regular person. But the idea is in some ways that a cemetery embraces our society as a whole. I mean, whomever we are, wherever we've come from, and whatever our educational level. But it's also a wonderful aspect to look that, yes, we too could be part of that evolution of the rural cemetery movement of the 19th century. I think that's cool. Let's take a break. If you folks uh, want to get involved, please do, 617-254-1030. Usually, we're pretty specific on a town, one of Anthony's books, but a little more open-ended this time. We will be talking about the Mass Horticultural Society and Horticultural's place, Horticulture's place in Boston and Massachusetts. A couple of questions. You're a son of Italy. A member, yes. Um, and a- so it, you can talk a little bit about this. It's related to cemeteries. In Italy, one thing that's very popular to do is have a photo uh, at the gravesite. Yes. Or they have these, it's a mausoleum, they, they're drawers and on the yes. end of the drawer is a photo. I'm curious about why do you suppose we don't do that here? Well, you know, we go to Italy every year and we spend time not just in Rome and Florence and Venice, but we go into Abruzzi and we go into the Fresnone and throughout the areas of what is basically the real Italy. And one of the things is we rent a villa in the little town of San Donato Val de Camino. And we go every year, and it might be for four or five days, and it's just the most wonderful thing. But, of course, I'm fascinated with history of cemeteries. And one of the things is, in the very center of the cemetery, which is a 17th-century cemetery, is a charnel house. And many times people don't realize that in that period, after 15 or 20 years, the former townspeople are removed from their graves and placed into the charnel house. Well, in the recent past, many of these cemeteries in Italy have created walls that actually allow a casket to be simply slipped into a small opening, and then a piece of marble is placed on the front. And yes, a photograph of the person enclosed is placed there. And it's an interesting aspect. I assume that many people, you know, for the 15 years, are going to go there and, you know, memorialize their family and friend who has died. 
But one of the things is some of these photographs are quite eerie. When we were there, Joe's name is really Cicidio Lucio Cedroni. So we were looking at the graves, and there was a name on this wall. And it was his name. And I looked at the photograph, and it was actually a photograph that looked very much like Joe. And because San Donato Val de Camino is less than 1,500 people, I'm sure that everyone is related. But it was the most peculiar and eerie thing to realize in some ways that this was something that was a, a European tradition of placing a photograph on the grave, but that many of these people themselves in some ways, once so vital in our lives and our community and everything of that sort, were now in the Garden of the Dead. So I think sometimes, yes, these things are different. We don't see it as much in this country, though in many instances today in the cemeteries, on occasion one will see a photograph on these or even an engraving within the granite of the person as well. I think today monuments have become something that are unique and individualistic. They conform to a height and a material and everything of that sort, but many times they can actually be quite unique. Um, mine is not. It's a slate headstone, colonial revival, and it's very simple. But I think in a lot of ways you can be as unique and exuberant as you wish. But it's part of this whole aspect of creating horticulture. So you went with a classic style that won't go out, that won't become well, I mean, out of fashion. Most people would think future. it was quite boring, but I think it's kind of fun because in some ways it's a <laughs> a nice old stone within an old section of a cemetery, and it's something in a lot of ways that I look at, and maybe somebody will drop a flower on the grave. Who knows? I will. Oh, wouldn't that be sweet? Let's Assuming hope it's, that... Let's hope it's not for the next 50 years, though. That's a, if I go first, you do the same for I me. will. All right. Greg in Ohio. Whoa, Greg, hi. How you doing? Hey, uh, fantastic guest. Uh, you know, I, I want to ask, this question have you wrote any books about this well you know the funny thing is i did a book on what's called the history of forest hill cemetery and i brought in the aspect of horticulture with not just the aspect of fruits and flowers and vegetables but it was also something that actually talked about these people who were instrumental in that movement of the 19th century you know, in the rural cemetery or the Arboretum Cemetery movement of the 1830s and 1840s was embraced not just by these major cemeteries, as I mentioned, Mount Auburn and Forest Hills, but then there were lesser cemeteries that sprung up not just in New England but throughout the United States. So I do write about it, I do lecture about it, and I give walking tours of Forest Hill Cemetery. But the walking tours themselves also talk about the aspect of who these people were. So there were people that hybridized pears, people who hybridized cherries, people who hybridized Festiva Maxima peonies. And I try to bring them into the context of vital people who had a life, had a family, but their avocation was horticulture. So it's something of a cemetery, but it's also what they've contributed to our life today. Thanks, Greg. Got 30 well, seconds. Got 20 well, seconds. Okay, real quick, I just want to say, you know, I, I grew up, uh, and my grandparents' pictures are on their tombstones, yes. where you flip them up, there's their picture. Yeah. And uh, one last quick question. There was a, a monks that used to, when they got buried, ten, they I have ten seed seconds. in their belly. Had they what? Put a seed in their belly, so 
Greg mentioned that his passed on relatives had a seed of some sort put in there. Had to eat a cherry seed or something like that. We, and neither Anthony or I know anything about that. Oh, but burying, I guess, and then putting a seed of a cherry within the belly, I assume it's something that would actually gesticulate and then, of course, maybe grow a cherry tree. Nice aspect to horticulture. I mean, it's almost as though, you know, grandpa's blooming out yeah. in the garden today, and, you know, something of that sort. And I think that's kind of fun. I mean, many times we go to cemeteries and we see trees' roots have actually usurp the family lot and the headstones are cantilevered in every which direction. But I think sometimes you have to look at horticulture and realize, too, that a cherry seed is an important part of this whole aspect of horticulture. Now, one of the things is, have you ever been to Edward Everett Square in Dorchester where there is a six-foot-tall bronze pear? I have not seen that. Well, one of the things is, I'm sure many people that drive by this, and it's at the junction of what is today Massachusetts Avenue, Boston Street, um, West uh, Cottage Street, and Columbia Road, have actually seen this enormous pear. And the pear is derived from the man, a man by the name of Thaddeus Clapp, who actually was a pomologist. He was somebody who hybridized pears. Now, he lived on Boston Street. His father's house is the William Clapp House, which is the headquarters of the Dorchester Historical Society. And during the 1830s and 1840s, whereas the Clapps had once been tanners, by the 1830s and 1840s, they began to actually hybridize fruits on their grounds. And they had over 300 acres, which included the South Bay Mall. Now, one of the things is Thaddeus unlike his brother Lemuel, had attended Harvard College. He graduated in 1834. He went on to become quite well-respected in the community, but one of his avocations was hybridization of pears. Well, he created the Clap favorite pear, which was a hybrid of the Bartlett pear and the Flemish beauty pear. And this was um, an early ripening pear. So by the second or third week of August the pear actually ripened, which extended the period like six weeks. So many people looked at this pear as something that was a marvel. Well, the Massachusetts Horticultural Society not only presented an award to Thaddeus Clapp, but he was offered $1,000 for the pear seedling. Now, $1,000 in 1840 was a tremendous sum of money, and it was something you had to realize that this man was not only well-respected, but he was also somebody who wanted, in some ways, to perpetuate the name, Clapp's favorite. Well, this is a little bit of a writing that I had done a few years back, and it said that the um, whole aspect was that it wasn't just the Clapp favorite pair, but that Clapp himself actually had hybridized many pear seedlings and was quite successful. And he gave these seedling names to new streets that were cut through his father's estate. So off of Boston Street, which runs from Andrew Square to Ebbett Everett Square, the new streets were known as Mayhew, Mount Vernon, Harvest, Dorset, and Bellflower Streets, all named after pear seedlings that were created by Thaddeus Clapp. But so successful was the Clapp favorite pear seedling that basically uh, the Massachusetts Agricultural Club which wished to name it after Marshall Wilder, who was the president of the Horticultural Society, and to disseminate it for general cultivation, they offered Clapp $1,000, but he politely declined. 
and for two decades, Clapp continued his horticultural pursuits and was an active member of the Massachusetts Horticultural Society and the Norfolk Agricultural Society. But he was said to be a most amiable and wonderful disposition man who led a life of unspotted integrity. And today, when we think of that pear, which is six feet tall, we have to realize in some ways that this was a man who revolutionized how we ate fruit. So it's something in some ways that Clapp was the hybridizer of this, this pear that actually created all these new seedlings. And then again, 150 years after his death, which is actually at Forest Hill Cemetery, and his tombstone actually has a marble bas-relief of the Clapp favor pear on it, is something that perpetuates his experiments. Were, were pears m- more of a staple than it seems like they were? Pears figured more into maybe they're really cannibal, and that's like not cannibal, like I mean, something you can can easily. Mm -hmm. Canning was really important, and stuff that people grew had to be something that could be canned well. Have you ever? I'm curious, you strike me as somebody that might be a food person. Have you ever? Do you can stuff? We do. Um, I think a lot of times people have to realize I made strawberry uh, jam the other day with strawberries that I had had. Uh, the supermarket had a thing, three for one, and I thought to myself, well, this is very nice. What am I going to do with three boxes of strawberries? So I made strawberry jam, and it's something that was an interesting thing. I didn't do it from a recipe. I just did it as an experiment. It was quite fine. How do you do it? Well, I sautéed the strawberries in a sugar water with lemon peel and um, went on and until they got actually quite soft, then I made a strawberry jello and basically did it as a thicker substance and then added it to it and then allowed it to set and then I beat it with just a little bit of lemon juice. Came out pretty good. I and thought, that was not not a recipe, you just did it. I just do it. I, I cook for, I love to read cookbooks. Um, I'm fascinated with it. I love to watch cooking shows on television. But I think in a lot of ways I try to incorporate with whatever I've got from the season. I think you know we grow vegetables, we have a fruit orchard, we have chickens at the house in Austerville. So we always have fresh produce, we have fresh vegetables, we have fresh eggs, and we have herbs all over the deck. So it's something that allows me to cook in a way that actually is always fresh. So the only thing we really buy in the summer months are poultry and fish and meat. But I think in some ways that it's a fun way to cook because I assume in the 19th century many people did the same thing. You ate with the seasons. Of course, if one goes to the supermarket, you can get strawberries in January and you can get anything imaginable. But in that way, I think sometimes 19th century perceptions of fruits and vegetables can be a way that we not only learn about horticulture, but we learn how it has been hybridized and we too could even be somebody who actually created an entirely new strain of pears. Do you notice a, a distinct difference between the taste of the things you grow and what you buy in the supermarket? Very much so. I think one of the concepts is one of the most important things are such things as tomatoes. Tomatoes can be the most wonderful things on the face of the earth. And when you say just canning pears, if you can tomatoes, Everything is created in a much more subtle and delicious manner. Granted, canned foods is fine, but the idea is it's quite good. But 
eggs are something that you can also grow. <laughs> the chickens will lay these eggs that are incredibly delicious, but it's also what you feed them. So whatever we serve at our table, whether it's blueberry buckle or it's actually <laughs> oh, uh, pesto. <laughs> well, we did have pesto the other night with pasta, and they actually enjoyed it. Or it could be something such as just the gratings of potatoes and squashes and vegetables. They eat well, and with their grit, which is actually something that hardens the shell, it's become <laughs> the uh, pride of joy <laughs> to actually distribute eggs throughout the village in Austerville. You manage your time very well. You have your job, your pain boucher, fine builder job, and you speak all the time. You come here... And you run a small farm in Osterville. You must not have an, another moment. You seem to organize things very well. I do. And I think one of the things is I'm starting in a couple of weeks at the Urban College of Boston. I'll be teaching twice a week a history of Boston and its neighborhoods course. And in the fall, I teach at Boston University Metropolitan College. And that's, again, on the history of Boston. But I think one of the things is I live by a calendar, but I live by the seasons, too. So tonight when I realized in some ways when I was leaving the house, it was 60 degrees, the aroma of the spring. Everything was bursting with color and aroma yeah. of these trees. There's nothing better than springtime in New England. And it sounds peculiar, but when I do drive throughout the city, I think back, maybe it's that pear at whatever it's square. I think back to the 19th and early 20th century with these horticulturalists who were tinkering maybe with the hybridization of a new fruit, a new flower. And what they did was to create something that's become a mainstay today. So, I mean, it's not just the fact of creating something to eat, but it's creating something that has now survived decades and has become part of the foods that's offered at supermarkets throughout New England. Do you think you could live in the country gentleman life with the fruits and vegetables and the chickens all the time, or do you need to have both? I often fantasize, I'm going to give it all up and just garden, you know, but I, I, part of me knows that, that might, I might not be happy, but how about yourself? I need both. Yeah. I, I need sidewalks in the back bay, and I also need the uh, wonderful soil of Austerville. I think one of the funny things is, I mean, in a lot of ways, I mean, I'll be in the garden or something, and of course I have to scrub up to get up to town for something at the St. Patolf Club, and I think in a lot of ways it's kind of a fun thing. But I recently did a lecture at the St. Patolf Club and was on Jordan Marsh. So, of course, for dessert we were serving the Jordan Marsh blueberry muffins. But they weren't just any blueberry muffins. They were made from the 10 chickens' eggs from the nice. cave. So in a lot of ways, uh, Chef Chris Hall, who's actually our chef, is somebody who made these, and they were really quite nice, but it was also the type of a thing I can remember bringing up, like uh, six dozen eggs in this enormous wicker basket and dropping them off and thinking to myself, you know, this is how people once lived. And it's not that one goes to the supermarket and buys a dozen eggs. We go out to the chicken coop, which was specially built for these 10 chickens, all of whom have names, by the way. Uh -huh. <laughs> but it's something in a lot of ways you realize that they too contribute because the chicken coop is cleaned quite often and then it's mulched and then placed into the vegetable beds. 
So we create not just this cyclical cycle of seasons, but we're also rejuvenating the ground so that we can actually grow the vegetables throughout the summer months. Horticulture and greenhouses go hand in hand in my mind. Is that the case or mostly in greenhouses or is it outdoors just as much? No, greenhouses you know, really did begin to arise in the 18th century and we saw them both in England and France. You had to realize there were places, especially the royal families, would keep what were called orangeries. And the orangeries were enormous windows. And granted, there's an orangerie at Kensington Palace. So they would grow citrus fruits. Of course, it was something that was beautifully done. But a greenhouse, probably one of the first was on what is the slope, north slope of Beacon Hill. Kirk Boot actually had a greenhouse. And that Joy Joy Street, so uh, the, the corner of Bowden Street and uh, Cambridge Street, okay, on the um, west side. All right. So the idea was that that was probably one of the first on Beacon Hill. But then you also had the Vale, and then you also had Gore Place, and these wonderful country estates that did have greenhouses. So you could not only winter over plants, but you could also basically propagate them in the spring. Well, one of the things is, I mean, many of these cemeteries, both Forest Hills and Mount Auburn, would have greenhouses, and they were these tropical paradises. Not only did they have the wonderful tropical trees, palm trees and banana trees and all sorts of things, but they also set out all the seedlings that they would plant on the graves. So a greenhouse was something that really did arise in the early part of the 19th century and assisted in some ways in the propagation of seedlings for either fruits or vegetables. All right. I'm trying to picture a greenhouse down where the red hat is. Let's take a break. It's WBZ. We heard you on the radio. That's right. Now, say my name. All night till day with Bradley J. Bradley J. J Talking. WBZ News Radio 1030. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Turn on your radio. You've got me listening to this. Turn it on. Bradley J. Oh, you're a smooth talker. You are. You are. This is a Bradley J on BZ Talking. You talk the talk. Do you walk the walk? WBZ News Radio 1030. It is WBZ News Radio 1030. Now, Anthony and I, Anthony and I would like to um, invite you to call and just chat. We have in a pretty open forum here. We are talking about horticulture, certainly, and we can continue with that. Also, Anthony, this has never been done. On this program, maybe it's never been maybe it's never been done in front of you. I don't know, what? but I thought that it might be fun to list all your books. Oh my! And one reading, one sitting, I just to, so everyone. Good. I hope I have. <laughs> I don't know if that's probably not all of them. Maybe not. But <laughs> just folks, just so you know how prolific Anthony is. I hope this is on Arcadia. 
Boston in motion. Yes. Boston in the 20th century. All of these, I won't repeat the Boston word. It's Boston colon a century of progress. Historic walking tour. Boston's Back Bay. Back Bay in the Victorian era. Era, era. Fenway. Financial district. Harbor Islands. We never did the Harbor Islands, did we? No, we can do that. We can do that. Sure. North End. North End then and now, which is a different format. Boston South End. South End then and now. These are all available, right? Oh, yeah, it's on Amazon. You probably didn't know they were, they were all there. Look look Anthony up by Anthony M. Samarco. You'll probably see a lot of these. I still think you ought to offer a deal in the, in the, the complete set in a leather-bound case. Wow. Because they come from different publishers. Of so course. That would make it difficult. Sure. The Brief History of St. Joseph Church. West End, Medford, Cambridge. These are in separate books. Charlestown, Dorchester. Dorchester Then and Now. Dorchester Volume 2. Dorchester's big with you. It was, a, it was an important place. East Boston. Forest Hills Cemetery. Is it? This is your life, Anthony. Is it interesting to hear all these? <laughs> wow. Each with each, you, you flash to the making of the book. You probably you think. Georgetown. That's interesting. Georgetown. I did that as a favor to Louise Richardson. And Louise, if you're out there listening, I loved you. I learned so much about that town. Great Boston Fire of 1872. We did that. Howard Johnson's. How a Massachusetts soda fountain became a roadside icon. Hyde Park. Hyde Park then and now. Jay Sanger Atwill and his craftsmen. Tell me about that. Well, that was a book that I wrote uh, for the Lynn Historical Society. Jay Sanger Atwill was somebody I actually knew as a teenager. He was a man who not only made furniture in the colonial style, but he actually restored it as well. And in a lot of ways, he was somebody who was a mover and the shaker in the 1930s and 1940s. So I not only put together a book on him, but I also helped to mount an exhibit at the Lynn Historical Society. So it sounds peculiar, but for my 40th birthday, I had a tea table made. It's a copy of one that's in the Museum of Fine Arts. And what it is is a demi-lune. On the corners is a half circle all the way around where you would put the teacup and saucer. And um, it was made by Ron Trapasso, who actually had eventually bought out the J. Sanger Ratwell archive. And that's a book that you can get. You can. It's it's a somewhat small volume, but I'm sure the Lynn Historical Society has copies. Hyde Park. Hyde Park then and now I said that. Uh, Il Norte End de Boston. In Italian. In Italian. Uh, Jamaica Plain. Jamaica Plain then and now. Medford. Did we do Medford? We haven't yet. And uh, one of your callers had suggested yeah, we, should we do, do that. that. Okay. Jamaica Plain, Jamaica Plain then and now, Medford, Milton, Milton Architecture, Milton Architecture, small version, New Bedford, Nostalgic Views of Boston, Old North Burying Ground, Upham's Corner, Dorchester, Roslindale, Roslindale then and now, Roxbury, Roxbury then and now, different formats. I have 30 seconds. I might be able to do this. Somerville, South Boston, South Boston then and now. South uh, Trolleys Under the Hub. We never did that. No, that'd be fun. West Roxbury. West Roxbury then and now. And 
when Boston rode the L, we should talk about that because that's in the news. It's an anniversary. Yes, very much All right. so. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. How many of you actually rode the L? Oh, I like this. I wrote it. This is cool. Yes. Anthony, thank you for another fun, fun thank two hours. Thank you for hours. inviting me. Oh, man, it's great. Um, and uh, we didn't really, we can focus on the L next time. On, on that to. book, on that yeah, San Marco book. Oh, Thanks, folks. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.